From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Kendall Seesmeyer, your host. Free speech is one of the hallmarks of a functioning democracy and one of our fundamental constitutional rights. At the ACLU, we see free speech most threatened at times of heightened dissent and protest, exactly when it's most important. Over the last few months, as the world continues to witness the crisis in Israel and Palestine, protest in support of Palestine is being silenced and censored on college campuses. In early November, the ACLU sent out an open letter that reached over 650 college and university systems, expressing our strong opposition to any efforts that stifle free speech on college campuses and urging universities to reject calls to investigate, disband, or penalize pro-Palestinian student groups for exercising their free speech rights. In Florida, State University System Chancellor Ray Rodriguez already issued an order in consultation with Governor Ron DeSantis to deactivate Students for Justice in Palestine chapters in the state. In response, we and our partners at the ACLU of Florida and Palestine Legal are suing the state and university system of Florida on behalf of the University of Florida's chapter of Students for Justice in Palestine to block the deactivation order from taking effect. Joining us to discuss this important lawsuit are Shaper Rather, the Nadine Strassen Fellow with the ACLU's National Security Project, and Tyler Takamoto, the William J. Brennan Fellow with the ACLU's Speech Privacy and Technology Project. Shaper, Tyler, welcome to At Liberty, and thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Kendall. I'm excited to make my podcast debut. Thanks for having us, Kendall. Thanks so much to both of you for being here. I know that this is a topic with a lot of feeling. And so I just want to acknowledge that this is a really tough time for a lot of people. Nationwide, there is significant concern about anti-Semitism and anti-Palestinian and anti-Arab hate. I want to start our conversation today off by just getting a sense of the climate right now on some of the nation's university and college campuses. Students across the country are taking action and voicing opinion on the crisis in Palestine and Israel, but pro-Palestinian efforts have gained particular criticism from schools and local governments. We know that at a time like this, safety on campus is increasingly important. I'm wondering what role protecting students' right to free speech plays in ensuring that safety. Yeah, I think it's an important question. And at moments like these, universities especially have two goals. One, like you've rightly pointed out, is keeping all of its students safe from all backgrounds, all identities. Um, And equally important is also universities protecting the free speech rights of all of its students from all of its backgrounds and all viewpoints. And oftentimes, I think in moments of dissent, heated political tension, universities can sometimes skimp on the second in an effort to kind of have a band-aid solution to ensuring student safety. And so sometimes the response can be, oh, well, if I cut out the protests or if I cut out the opportunities to speak, if I silence it, well, then, you know, violence, disruption, disorder is not going to affect my campus. And that is just not 
a real solution to the actual problem. And universities have to be steadfast in both of those missions of keeping students safe, yes, and ensuring that everyone can walk campus and engage in their education freely, but also recognizing that freedom of speech and peaceful and protected speech is not a threat to that goal. I think as we described in ACLU's open letter to hundreds of college campuses that the atmosphere right now is quite McCarthyite. Uh, There have been well-documented efforts to punish students uh, predominantly on one side of this conversation. Mm. Um, Students, for example, have had job offers rescinded for speaking in favor of um, the Palestinian cause in this political moment. I think we're witnessing a lot of efforts to paint pro-Palestinian speech with a broad brush, characterizing this speech um, as dangerous, harmful, or even pro-terrorist. And I think it's in these moments when it's particularly important to make sure that our First Amendment rights are being enforced across the board to enable a nuanced and truthful conversation in this really painful and difficult time. Yeah, thank you so much for that. I mean, I think it's you're right that it harkens back to an era that we've experienced before in this country and um, not in a good way. You know, we all benefit from a robust sense of pluralism and the exchange of, of ideas and opinions. And that's really what this is about. We've seen different kinds of academic institutions respond in different ways when we talk about free speech issues. It turns out people have a real confusion about what is protected free speech and what is not. One of the nuances here that's important to kind of discuss is the difference between a public and a private institution. What can you say about that difference and how it pertains to students' free speech? I think the most important difference when we think about our constitutional protections and whether a university system is private or public is that uh, constitutional provisions like the First Amendment are designed to protect us from government efforts to suppress our speech. And so it's much easier to bring these types of cases when, for example, a public university system like the Florida State University system is trying to censor students' campus speech. And so that's why we're bringing this case with the Florida State University system as the primary defendant. Tyler's exactly right. But that's not to say that students at private universities don't have recourse. Um, They might just not have recourse in the way that we can, like, execute a complaint under the First Amendment. But there could be internal school procedures and administrative procedures. Another important point is that all universities, including private universities, uh, recognize the value in fostering many different types of perspectives and many different uh, types of speech on their campuses. And so they maintain internal policies that are meant to safeguard student expression in ways that correspond to First Amendment protections. And so this is one of the reasons why in our open letter to colleges and universities, we directed a lot of our arguments towards private universities as well, because even if a private campus might have the ability to restrict this type of speech, we believe that it's consistent with our modern mission of education to enable these types of nuanced conversations to happen in in an uncensored way. On October 25th, the Anti-Defamation League and the Louis D. Brandeis Center for Human Rights Under Law wrote to nearly 200 university presidents, urging them to investigate their chapters of an organization called Students for Justice in Palestine, or SJP. So this is where our considerations for our letter to university systems and college leaders begins. If you look 
through like the First Amendment lore of the Supreme Court and like the key cases, the ACLU has been there and has been championing the First Amendment across a variety of contexts. And that's from the like McCarthy era to now. And so I think when we saw the ADL letter go out, Internally, there was an understanding that once again, we are in heightened political tension, political moments, and ultimately there is no viewpoint exception to the First Amendment. And that also means there is no Palestine exception to the First Amendment. And I think that is a recognition that our organization holds true, that the First Amendment applies to all viewpoints. And tomorrow, two months from now, a year from now, there might be a different viewpoint and it might be something completely separate from pro-Palestine speech, but I think you can trust that like the ACLU will also step forward in that moment too, and step forward to advocate that like on First Amendment grounds, regardless of the perspective. I think Sheba's response is right on point. So in recent weeks, um, I think we've seen a, a mounting humanitarian crisis in the Gaza Strip. Um, and as uh, sort of the forums of conversations on issues of international and national importance, college campuses have been at the forefront of uh, students expressing, you know, very complex ideas around these issues. Um, as we spoke about, uh, there is definitely a McCarthyite atmosphere on these campuses. Uh, for example, you know, anecdotally, being a recent graduate from law school, uh, seeing calls to investigate my peers, um, simply because they may have belonged to a student group, not even, for example, a Students for Justice in Palestine group, but to an affinity group who may have signed on to a letter expressing sympathy with the Palestinian cause. Um, we've seen on campuses, um, you know, buses going around, uh, broadcasting people's names and faces and labeling them, you know, the purveyors of terrorist uh, or anti-Semitic speech merely because they may have belonged to a group that um, signed on to one of these sympathy letters. So in light of that, consistent, as Sheba said, with our historical role, the ACLU felt it very important to step in and urge caution and urge, you know, these universities to think twice before potentially adding fuel to the flames of, you know, vilifying one side of this conversation. Thank you for that context. I want to jump into actually talking about what the Anti-Defamation League and the Louis D. Brandeis Center letter was even referencing. Um, they referenced the organization Students for Justice in Palestine, or SJP. We'll talk about the lawsuit that we're involved in representing the University of Florida's chapter of Students for Justice in Palestine in a moment. But can you first just tell us about what Students for Justice in Palestine is as a student organization. Students for Justice for Palestine is a student organization that exists across a number of college campuses in America. And it's an organization that is committed to putting on advocacy, organizing, educating other people in, in their campus and also in the greater community on the struggle for Palestinian freedom and so these groups, you know, they are filled with undergraduate, graduate students, and they take time out of their daily schedules from class and work um, to take on this like additional labor of um, putting on events, flyering, um, staging peaceful protests, etc. I think it's also important to know that UF SJP is like 
doesn't pull students from any one identity. Um, it's across religions, grades, gender, nationalities, whatever you name it. Um, the common goal there is justice for Palestine. Um, and at UFSJP in particular, like we see members of the board and also members of the larger organization also track very widely across campus. I think all of this is really important to note as we then talk about what has happened in the aftermath of this memo that was sent in October by Ray Rodriguez, the chancellor of the State University System of Florida, um, in conjunction with Governor Ron DeSantis to the presidents of Florida's state universities that ordered them to deactivate active SJP chapters on their campuses, claiming that the chapters have violated the state's material support for terrorism statutes. When we became aware of this from the governor and the chancellor, what was the immediate reaction? And what does this mean in terms of students' civil rights and civil liberties as it pertains to this student group in particular? Well, the team's first thought was that this is very familiar. There's been a long history of government actors trying to deactivate or tamp down on student groups in order to make broader political points. Um, you know, for better or for worse, uh, there's also been a long history of this in our First Amendment case law. And so an immediate case came to mind, Healy versus James from the 1970s, involving a mm. very similar set of facts where a student chapter of a group, the Students for a Democratic Society, which many labeled a pro-communist group, um, uh, you know, there was effort to deactivate a chapter of that group on campus. The Supreme Court soundly held that the First Amendment protects these types of student groups from a university's efforts to deactivate them because of their perceived or even actual association with some sort of national group that the university might have a problem with. Um, and so our immediate thought when we saw this deactivation memo from Chancellor Ray Rodriguez was that this soundly violates the First Amendment. These students have very strong First Amendment rights in favor of their continued ability to organize and advocate on the issues of their choice. Yeah, I think it's important to note the other really concerning things about the memo that Governor DeSantis and Chancellor Rodriguez issued. Um, first and foremost, the memo is calling for the deactivation of SJP chapters across University of Florida school districts. That includes UF's SJP but the memo actually does not accuse UFSJP of any wrongdoing at any point. It does not say UFSJP misspoke. It did not say that UFSJP violated any federal law. It did not say that UFSJP violated any um, code of conduct or university regulation. The whole basis for the memo is that national SJP, an entirely independent, separate organization, issued a toolkit and the memo highlights two statements that it takes issue with as the basis for the material support for terrorism charge. And based off of that independent advocacy from an independent separate organization, it is asking University of Florida presidents to deactivate UFSJP. And that's not just a violation of the First Amendment. That goes against a number of principles very steadfast in our legal system. One, you cannot be criminalized or accused of wrongdoing based off of the actions of another independent organization. And two, in the context of material support, even if UFSJP had issued the statements that were of concern from the toolkit, 
independent advocacy that is not made at the direction of or in coordination with a terrorist organization is not material support for terrorism. And that is exactly what Holder versus Humanitarian Law Project stood for. That's a case from 2010. It is also very critical to the complaint and the brief we filed in addition to the Healy case Tyler mentioned earlier. Okay, so what do we think is the real goal of deactivating these chapters? What is Florida trying to do here? I mean, in our eyes, it's plain and simple. They're trying to muzzle a movement um, and particularly a pro-Palestinian movement. And that is not something that is unique to this moment either. I think what Governor DeSantis and the Chancellor Rodriguez is doing or what they're doing right now um, is in lockstep with that movement and is very aggressive. And um, I think your focus on the material support aspect is really right. Um This is not just saying we should deactivate this student group because they've stepped out of line with university policies. This is saying that the student group is offering support to a recognized terrorist organization. And that is loaded. Um, And that is also something that we have seen used um, and we've seen the federal material support statute, which the Florida material support statute is modeled off of. And so for these purposes, I'll kind of treat them as the same, but we've seen the material support statute weaponized against Black, Brown, Arab, Muslim, Middle Eastern, South Asian communities time and time again. And that happened and really blossomed post 9-11. And that is deeply racialized. Um, And again, that is coming from a place where we view people who are perceived to be Muslim communities um, as violent Uh and as suspect and as the only thing they're capable of is terrorism. Um, And we're seeing this across the country. Uh Like We've seen it being weaponized against Chinese Americans and Russians. We've been seeing it weaponized against cop city activists in Georgia, right? What they were first accused of was domestic terrorism. And part of that is... Governments know that there is this trump card and will use it. And in this case, they're using it to totally cut out the legs of a movement. And in this case, a pro-Palestinian one. You just said a lot there, Sheba. We've seen this time and time again. We just did an episode about um, anti-Asian land laws in Florida um, and the anti-China sentiment that um, it's really propagated in Florida. So... You're right. It is a trump card. It is being used pervasively and then very specifically in this instance to paint one side of this conflict as anyone advocating for Palestine in this conflict as being associated with terrorism, which is a really serious allegation to be making, especially towards a group of college students. I mean, if you really think about that in comparison with um, the events that you described um, these students engaging in, it's really offensive to think about that being used as a weapon. Kendall, you brought up a great contextual point, and I think it's important to just you know, keep that in perspective, um, that this is a group of students against the highest officials in their state and their university. So it should come as no surprise that the students you know, are scared and intimidated by, you know, this daunting weight of these officials calling for their deactivation, vilifying their speech. There are current efforts to try and get people who express solidarity with the Palestinian cause 
fired, expelled, or disciplined. Um, and in light of all of that, um, you know, these efforts to draw attention to you have SJP and conflate their activism with terrorism um, have led a lot of students to face intimidation and harassment. And if I can add, Kendall, I think it's also important to kind of step back and say that many of those students have connections with people who are Palestinian, who have family there, or are Palestinian themselves, and waking up every day to not only receive news about their loved ones, but also news from the governor and the chancellor and what people are saying about them in this country and accusing them of. And that, to me, it's like, it's it's too much to even comprehend at my age, nonetheless, at the age of like a 19 or 20 year old. Um, and in that way, like, our students are incredibly courageous and have made the many long nights of filing this case quickly and as soon as possible easy and like very, very worth it. So I want to talk about the lawsuit in specific because you just mentioned um, the long nights that you all have been spending filing this lawsuit in response to the calls to activate SJP. The University of Florida chapter has sued the state university system. We are representing the chapter in the lawsuit along with our partners. Can you tell us about what the lawsuit seeks to do and what the main argument from SJP is here? So the lawsuit, um, first and foremost, seeks to have a court declare this memo deactivating SJP chapters to be unconstitutional in violation of the First Amendment and prevent them from going into effect. Um, so in in tandem with our lawsuit, we filed a motion for a preliminary injunction, which basically accomplishes that second thing. If the court grants it, then the state of Florida is blocked from enforcing this deactivation memo. Um, and we feel very strongly that the very existence of this order is causing harassment and chilling the speech of UFSJP. Um, and so it's really important to us to have this court recognize um, that this is a First Amendment violation, plain and simple. How is this lawsuit going to progress from here? Kendall, I guess the good news is I don't think we're in that much of a waiting pattern. The benefit of filing a preliminary injunction is that you are putting a lawsuit on a fast track mm -hmm. and you are telling the court that this is urgent. And so by filing that, we are we are moving on this quicker schedule. Unfortunately, the holidays are around the corner. Yeah. Um, but like Tyler mentioned, we filed this preliminary injunction asking for relief. The court is going to hold a hearing on that around the end of January, um, so pretty soon after. And at that hearing, what we're expecting and what we're hoping is that the court is going to say that this memorandum violated the First Amendment and that it is unconstitutional. And therefore, UF, um, the University of Florida, cannot deactivate SJP on its campus on those grounds. I think it's important to say that, like, yes, this case can feel unique, because of how much of a pressing issue this is and how politically sensitive it might be. But at the same time, this is well in line with decades-old Supreme Court precedent. Uh -huh. Our complaint says that you can't discriminate based off of viewpoint. You can't interfere with a student group's right to associate or speak on college campuses. And there is no exception for pro-Palestinian speech. And full stop. I think we 
see the front lines of free speech battles and concerns and issues and difficulties being so often student speech, whether that be K-12 speech or college or uh, level speech, or even just young people post-grad leading protest movements. And as young people yourself, I'm just curious about your reflection on that. Like, why is it so important as young people to be helping other young people express their points of view? I love this question. I think that you hit the nail on the head when you said that, you know, it's nothing new that student speech has been at the vanguard of social movements. Uh, We've seen this when it came to well, the, the birth of the free speech movement in the 60s in tandem with the civil rights movement um, that morphed then into a protest movement against our involvement in the Vietnam War. We saw this at the height of the ACT UP movement to protest government inaction in the face of the AIDS crisis. Um, and simultaneously, the LGBTQ liberation movement, we saw this in the context of the gender equality and women's rights movements. Um, we saw this in college movements to protest um, apartheid in South Africa. Um, and so I think that this notion that you know, student speech is important and sometimes, you know, at the vanguard of broader social movements, it's just really important to keep in the front of our minds when we think about the value of making sure the First Amendment, you know, as as a famous case put it, does not end at the schoolhouse gate. Um, and I think, um, you know, as a young person who recently graduated from law school, it's really sobering to see you know, peers of mine who have been engaged in a variety of activism across many issues and oftentimes in solidarity with one another, being labeled criminal, being labeled, you know, naive or immature for their interest in, you know, broader social issues. Sheba, what do you have to add? I mean, Tyler said so much. People go to college to find themselves. And like, Finding yourself also means finding your principles, finding your morals, finding what it means to stand for justice for you. Um, And if we can't foster a college community where people can speak freely on that, such that they can also build the foundation of the person they want to be 10 years from now, then we're really, we're putting the country Mm -hmm. on like a stagnant path. Um, And hope for progress is very much tied to the amount of speech we have on college campus and the amount of experimentation and protest and activism um, and discussion we're fostering there. Um, And so to Tyler's point, it is scary to see it um, as a person who recently graduated, but it's also not foreign to me. Like I think both Tyler and I were very active participants in our respective undergrad and law school communities and have felt maybe not on this issue, but different issues, the attempt to stifle those conversations. Um, And it's important that students like us, students like our plaintiffs in the SJP case, continue to fight back. Um, And we as the ACLU are happy to like lend them that shield as well. Thank you both so much. I'm so glad that we have you on this case. Just as we wrap up here, we talked about this a little bit, but if we could give folks who are listening just a quick one, two, three things that they can look out for um, when they're engaging in protest movements. What can we tell them about what to look out for when thinking about free speech infringements? 
broadly, um, it's important to keep in mind that the First Amendment protects us when government actors try and stifle our speech because of our viewpoint. Um, this encompasses uh, public universities. So if you're a student in a public university system and you feel that you know, as a student group or as an individual, uh, the campus is disciplining you or silencing your speech purely because of, you know, what viewpoint you're trying to express. Um, that is flatly um, against the First Amendment. Um, the First Amendment also protects your right to organize and demonstrate on behalf of causes that you believe in. And as the ACLU, we uh, maintain a variety of know your rights materials. If you want to plan or coordinate an action alone or in collaboration with other groups, uh, so we encourage you to explore those resources. I think whether you're at a public or a private university and you are organizing um, or protesting on an issue that you feel like is getting suppression or reprimand from your university, now's a good time to also know your university policies. And that means the code of conduct um, or, or policies regulating student organizations in particular, and also what kind of internal administrative processes are built in for you to seek some sort of remedy. Oftentimes, schools will have an internal disciplinary process. And I think at times like these, universities or any bad actor um, starts to falter on those processes and procedures. I think also separately from that, especially right now, we are seeing coordinated efforts to silence students, both from the university, but also from third actors, third party actors. And those are terrifying, whether that's doxing, whether that's posting your personal or public information online, um, whether that's kind of defaming you in different ways. Um, there are steps that you can take in terms of like internet uh, housekeeping or internet safeguarding that you should look into taking some of those proactive steps of, okay, I am an organizer on a hot topic issue right now. My face is in a lot of places. Maybe I should, you know, take some things down from social media. Maybe I should make sure my address isn't in yep. certain places online. If doxing is a concern or physical threats or safety or online harassment are concerns, I would also recommend student activists look into that. You know, once again, regardless of whether you're a student at a public or a private institution, you know, whether you're a student in K through 12 or at a university, um, I think one thing to just keep in mind is that you don't have less rights just because you're a student. Your voice matters um, and should be should be heard. We love students. Sheba, Tyler, thank you so much for joining me to discuss this really important filing um, and the issue at large um, and what we can all do to better protect student speech and engage in it. I really appreciate your time. Thanks so much, Kendall. Thank you for having us. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We really appreciate the feedback. Until next week, stay strong. At Liberty is a production of the ACLU, produced by me, Kendall Seesmeyer, and Vanessa Handy. This episode was edited by Matt Boynton. Julian Silva-Forbes is our intern.